Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Today's episode is sponsored by Diversity Lab, closing the gender gap through data, innovation, and science. Diversity Lab, talent done differently. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest transitioned from law firm partnership to in-house counsel, managing litigation for the world's largest retailer. Today, his office oversees his company's relationships with all outside counsel, measuring performance, cost, and diversity. The leader of the Office of Outside Counsel Management and Legal Operations for Walmart Stores, Alan Bryan, welcome to Left Foot. Hi, Nicole. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on our program, Alan. Let's dive in and talk about your transition. You've been at Walmart. You've had at least two roles there, but you did transition from a firm environment to the in-house counsel area within Walmart. What personal strengths or habits did you rely on during that transition? Patience, for one. I'm sort of kidding, but sort of not. I think patience is important in any transition. That's importantly patience with yourself. Can't expect to come into any situation totally new to it and totally new to its expectations and demands. Uh, You have to give yourself time and and know that you're given time to, to get up to speed and get running. But there are plenty others. One thing that I try to maintain is a sense of honesty and, and humility. When I'm new to something, I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. I think we all make mistakes. And uh, we make incorrect assumptions about things. And I think you have to go into any kind of change with that attitude, particularly if you're going to lead others. You want to have that attitude so you can gain acceptance and and credibility with those you're trying to work with. And that also segues into communication skills. When you move from uh, an individual role where, where you are perhaps, particularly from the outside to the inside, where you are really responsible for yourself and your book of business to a situation where you're responsible for the management of others, whether it be others who are managing cases or others who are, who are directly under you, you want to have good communication with them because you want to make sure that you're sharing your vision and strategy, uh, how you like to see things. And really, if you read anything on change management, as I have, uh, communication is often mentioned as key. Another trait I would probably list is passion for what you do. When I transitioned from outside counsel to in-house, it was because I had a passion to lead others, and that's what I wanted the opportunity to do. And very grateful that I've been given a chance to do that with Walmart. Absolutely agree. Patience and passion are so critical to success, definitely with motivating others. When you transitioned to the operations role, the legal operations role, what was the most surprising thing about that transition? I think that the most surprising thing was you learn different ways of practicing law. In other words, when I managed litigation, I was handling litigation. When I was outside counsel, uh, when I was a private practitioner, I was a litigator. What I learned immediately is the different ways of practicing law, the different ways of attacking different types of of legal problems that other subject matter areas have, have dealt with that I was not familiar with. I guess that was the first transition or, or learning experience was to learn the breadth of subject matter that particularly in, in our legal department that we deal with. 
not so much surprise as much as knowing that I would be uh, drinking from the fire hose, as they say, given the amount of volume of, of work. So it, w- it wasn't a surprise, but it was a, definitely a, a transition to, to undertake. And Alan, was the legal operations area within Walmart established when you joined, or is that something that you've been involved in creating? I moved into a role that was called the Office of Outside Counsel Management originally from from managing litigation. And that role was established several years back to really, in a nutshell, manage the relationship that Walmart has with its outside counsel. And that's everything, I like to say, it's the beginning of the relationship to the end. It's everything from the recruitment, the onboarding uh, of firms, all the way to maybe the end of a relationship and everything that's not matter management in between. So things like uh, management of our outside counsel guidelines, uh, our malpractice, mandates our my office handled all conflict waivers of law firms that came into the company. We also, as you mentioned in the opening, measured performance and diversity and cost efficiency of firms. We were doing this for hundreds of law firms. And so that in itself was the function prior to about a year and a half ago when our department stood up uh, a legal operations group. And my role did not change, but evolved, if you will, to include a more operational focus. Instead of only looking externally to law firms that I was managing and attorneys that I was managing in relationships, since I also turned my attention at that time internally to things such as processes, cost efficiencies. We expanded the scope of how we look at uh, vendor management, and we became, I guess, more holistic in our view and started thinking strategically about the legal department operating as a whole, not so much in silos, because we had done a little bit of that here and there. Also, what was brought into the picture was the formation of a legal data and analytics team, which exists alongside my office as the keeper of our metrics and our data and our systems. And so that group works hand-in-hand with my group to make us more operationally efficient, more technologically savvy as a legal department, to have knowledge management of of the things we've done to put out communications. We have that portion of our legal operations group and just to provide good governance. And so we're still in the evolution of that team, but we did stand it up and have made some foundational efforts over the past year and a half. I'm sure we'll reference that team again. What do you look for? in either outside counsel, whether that be a specific lawyer or practice or firm that you're going to partner with on a matter, what's the criteria you look for in those firms? Let me speak to what we're looking for in the long term and then come back and answer what we look for at the beginning. Over time, as the relationship develops, we look at many, many things. The three most important factors, I would say, if I had to categorize them, would be cost, diversity, and performance of the law firm. Those are the areas where you have the most importance as far as what we're looking for to get out of the law firm. There's others that are very helpful in developing the relationship that also play a factor in the in the beginning, which is the strength of the 
subject matter expertise of the firm, its past experiences. There's also some individual or ad hoc considerations that you put into this. And being a, an entity that needs legal services in all 50 states for a variety of different subject matter areas, you are looking oftentimes based on the type of case, the jurisdiction, the opposing counsel. I can't say that there's any one single set of traits that you're looking for when you're hiring new counsel. Obviously, you have certain competencies that you expect out of them. Once you've determined that they meet those core competencies, it's really how they fit into the work you want them to do for you. Of course, that makes tremendous sense. Do law firms proactively come to Walmart and suggest that they want to work with you and even beyond law firm service providers? There are law firms that do come to us and it's really no secret. I tell them very much the same thing. Part of my message is the same every time, which is tell me how you can innovate, how you can do something a different way that either saves money or gets a faster or better result. Tell me how you think that you can differentiate from another lawyer who might be doing the exact same work for us right now. What do you know about the business? What do you know about the issues facing my company? And how can you help? How can you help me face those issues and help our attorneys, our managing attorneys, face and solve those issues for the company? That's really what I'm asking a new firm or a new attorney to do, you could say, is to differentiate themselves because there are so many that do the work and would like to do the work. It, it, it certainly helps to when you can find that unique quality. You know, we hear that often. Most attorneys, especially attorneys that focus on a certain niche, let's say it that way, in specialty, they do good work. Of course, and many do exceptionally good work. It's really how they relate to your organization, if they're good business people, if they understand your industry industry, some of those other factors that are not always aligned with doing good legal work. It really leads us to the next question. Is there an experience that you've had in purchasing of legal services that you can say, wow, you know, they, they really did all the right things. They differentiated themselves. They presented themselves succinctly. They were able to come in and address what are our main objectives for the future or concerns about how a particular agreement would be structured they were able to do the right things. Can you share a success story around a firm without mentioning names or service provider that did that well? There have been a few firms that have come in and, and presented us with a new proposition, whether it be how to manage and attack an investigation or whether it be uh, the strategy for handling heavy volume litigation that we face. I don't really know that there's any one instance that, that bundles them all together, but there have been instances where, I, where I've seen new firms come in and offer that uniqueness. But I would say the success story, if you will, is really about a firm and particularly an attorney who expanded their work from what it was by the way they treated us as a company and as a client. I'd sum that up by saying, as a an in-house attorney, our people are generally looking for who will make good partners because really what they're looking for is a partnership between them and the outside counsel as to representation of the company, whether it be in a tribunal or in a conference room, whatever it may be. And the success story, I'd say, is that I can think of is someone who would routinely put their self-interest behind the company's best interest. And for instance, this was the type of person who was a litigant. 
investigator and who would call us and say, for instance, this is a matter you've assigned to me where I've read the file, I've read the complaint. There's just really no reason to go down this road of discovery or take these depositions or what have you. Let me call the opposing counsel. Let me talk to them. Let me see if we can't find resolution. In other words, she could have said, well, I want to explore this. I want to to do this and that, which would have been good for her in the short term because it's more work for her to generate. But it's really what I would call in my own parlance a long-term play because when that occurs, then there's immediate trust that is built between that outside counsel and the person managing him or her. And when you can establish that rapport, uh, you are in for a very likely long-term relationship and future assignment. So while it may be short-term loss, if you will, it's best for the relationship. And that's where I've seen success is when attorneys focus on the partnership and the partnership being a long-term proposition. We expect with an organization like Walmart, you're getting some pretty accomplished and pretty successful people, both on the business side, experienced in the matters at hand. Those are the teams that are coming to present to Walmart about additional business, whether it's for current client expansion or new clients. Has there been a situation where a firm has been less than successful in a way that was really surprising to you and your team about how they approached, it's not my favorite word, but pitching for your business? Certainly. And again, let me speak in in the general first. Actually, the last answer is a segue into it. There are attorneys who, once they have been successful in the pitch, who I think really look at the opportunity as one where there can be a lot to be made within the short term. I don't think they focus on that long-term partnership and relationship that, that could be built. To your question specifically as to the pitch, if you will, it is, at least in my own personal opinion, and I think I I can say for many colleagues here and in other companies, it is somewhat clear when you hear a pitch or a proposal or or something else where you, for lack of a better term, feel like a prize or just revenue and that it's not really an entity or a person who wants to build a relationship. I know that's really vague, but it's those individuals who that are successful, they're the ones who want to build the relationship and they understand that this takes patience. Everyone who is pitching themselves or their firm, I would like to say, hey, we're the best at this or that. And they like to say how they would really like your business and how they know they can provide the best service. I think as a whole, in-house attorneys hear that quite often, that focus on why they're the best at what they do. But I don't think it's refreshing to the in-house attorneys who hear it because what they would like to see is not only that relationship building, but that you've done your homework, that it's not only about you. You've come in and you have researched the issues facing the company and you're ready to address how you are best suited to handle them. The other thing I'd say is just never forget that at the end of the day, these in-house attorneys that you're speaking to, that they're just people. And I think most in-house attorneys would appreciate that you get to know them first before launching immediately into the pitch. And I say that for the instance where the pitch, if you will, is occurring at the cocktail party or the bar organization meeting or something like that. Because it's tempting to jump right into your pitch and your selling points because you think this is my short time to do this. But my advice is patience again and being in it for the long term gain. I think that 
also what should be considered is if it is an existing and established company or insurer or other entity, then more likely than not, they have panel counsel or other attorneys who are probably working in the area for which you're pitching. That's not always the case, but it often is. Even when you begin the process of getting to know someone and your patient, you have to understand that you might be vying for a spot uh, in a rotation of assignment in a geographic area or subject matter area that may not need anyone immediately or has an abundance of attorneys. And so I think that's another thing that is sometimes lost. The last thing I would say that sometimes misses the mark is what we would see in the way of marketing materials. Uh, And I think the average attorney or marketing group for many law firms will present what they know best, which is perhaps a biography, a list of representative matters or clients or organizations they belong to. For firms, it's the summary of the history and their commitments and promises. While those things are instructive, I don't think they provide that uniqueness that I mentioned earlier. And every attorney is going to provide those things. So I coach prospective attorneys that uh, seek our business to, again, explain why you're unique and why that managing attorney who's assigning those cases should take a chance on you. What do you bring to the table that's different? How will you attack a specific problem to us or limit the cost or provide a resolution that is different than the other four or five attorneys that may be vying for that same work? The other instance where I have seen service providers who were less than successful is failure to present a diversified team to handle our matters because it's something that's very important to us. Thank you for bringing that point. And we're hearing that more and more from different organizations, general counsel for businesses and and companies that are significant, like Walmart. MetLife's general counsel has made the same comment, that diversity is top on their list. So, Ricardo. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's great to hear it from multiple influencers in this space. And now a word from our episode sponsor. Diversity Lab creates and invests in innovative talent and diversity initiatives to help organizations find and keep the best talent. The lab hosts hackathons to inspire creative thinking, creates and pilots unique initiatives such as the OnRamp Fellowship, creates groundbreaking research, and highlights what others are doing to advance women. Go to diversitylab.com to learn more. Diversity Lab, talent done differently. Alan, I heard patience and passion, the same thing. If someone can come to you and show that they're going to be patient and then show the passion by being able to show why they should be your next partner. Let's shift our discussion to costs. There's been a lot of change in the industry. Costs have definitely creeped into the discussion about selection of firms, selections of teams, really beyond selection, managing the ongoing relationship. What are you seeing, hearing, doing around legal costs and managing those costs that you're really surprised it's part of the conversation now. It's, you know, it's something that you didn't think five years ago, 10 years ago, you'd be implementing today. But what are you seeing and doing at Walmart around legal costs that you can share with our listeners? First, I would say that there's a lot of talk about pace of change and how much change has come to the legal profession over the past few years. And in reflecting on that, I have looked back to when I was in private 
practice and we boy we didn't see this change then but in reality when you look in hindsight you're seeing that change has been a constant in the profession it just may be more prevalent today uh, than it was then for instance when I started you were trained in your research and writing and your briefing was all through books and that transition occurred as I was very new in my career to the point where books become quite antiquated and that's just an example of change and how technology has brought about change and you could probably pick several others that have changed the profession and technology today is incredibly changing the profession and the speed in which we do things but I would have to say the one thing that when I look back I would have never thought that to be uh, the change that was so prevalent, it would have to be the disaggregation of legal services. And I think that's going to continue into the future. And I'll go back to when I started practicing, I was a young litigator. Just as an example, back then, associates would have their chance to uh, cut their teeth on a hearing here and there. You know, I was lucky to, to get early depositions and court appearances and even trials at a very young age. It's not enough, even as lucky as I was, to fill up your time as an associate. There's plenty of other work that you could do as an associate. And the obvious example that everyone thinks of is in large commercial and class action, you did document review. And that could involve several associates in a conference room. Discovery orders could send associates to a location or a hospital or a nursing home, even to a plant, and spend hours, if not days, digging through documents and filing cabinets. I think that e-discovery and document review services started this change and it became a burgeoning factor as I was leaving the profession. The technology has advanced so much that it's really almost taken it out of the traditional legal service model to the point where it can be done completely separate of the law firm. And that really, if you look back, would be one of the starting points. Now there are more and more services that are being performed outside of the traditional law firm model. That's something that I didn't see is the fact that you'd have litigation or deals, they would become multi-entity propositions where multiple groups are handling different parts of a project separately, but all under a unified strategy, perhaps being managed by an in-house attorney or perhaps being managed by a law firm attorney. In that same sense, you can see from the early discussions and writing that we're seeing now on artificial intelligence that we're still going to see this disaggregation of services. I'm not one who believes that artificial intelligence will take over lawyers and their jobs anytime soon, but I believe there's a place for it within the profession and it could replace certain tasks, learn, for instance, how to kick off a lawsuit defense or uh, use automated learning to help manage attorneys in-house and outside in firms on strategy and how to handle a case. There's a lot of opportunities that will come from technology, but all of it spells to me what I didn't expect, which was the different ways that legal services can be provided outside of the traditional law firm model. It's interesting because I do think that technology, not only does it, first off, make us more efficient and make firms more efficient, but a lot of these databases you couldn't scan through with people. The volume is too great. We almost need the technology to be able to do the work well, searching emails and servers, and it would make it almost endless. The time involved, not only, again, wouldn't be efficient, almost border on not possible, in my opinion. The point you made about artificial intelligence, the way we feel more comfortable with e-discovery today is probably 
really what's going to happen with artificial intelligence. No, that's true. And I would say the exact same thing for where we are with cybersecurity. There's so much going on in that space now that is new frontier. I think for some people, it's really scary. I think eventually it will develop into something that's just second nature. Absolutely. We had some points about technology, some points about legal services firms and their involvement in today's legal landscape being core to the legal ecosystem in most organizations, especially those of size. What would you consider innovative of the things that you see happening either in the technology space or in the legal services space? I think AI it would definitely be part of that answer. I don't know that I can pinpoint it at the moment, be specific about it, other than to say anything that is a new way of attacking the legal concerns we have as a company or for any company could be innovative. I'd use the example of how we assess risk. If, for instance, you can use data to decrease, not just decrease your litigation costs, but prevent litigation, that's the kind of thing that's new and cutting edge and would be very helpful beyond technology. Uh, I would say innovation needs to come in a different way of doing things. As to cost itself, the big 800-pound gorilla with the legal profession is the billable hour and how there's so many things about the billable hour that, in my opinion, need to be changed and how it affects how we work as lawyers, how we pay for legal services, et cetera, et cetera. There's been multitude of discussion about alternative fee arrangements and those types of things. But at the end of the day, I've yet to see broadly scalable AFAs across the industry. And I think that the person who can excuse my language, but kill the billable hour is going to be uh, a true innovator. And whether it be some sort of value-based model, uh, expand the use of AFAs and, and eradicate the billable hour across the industry and have people comfortable with it, that's going to be major innovation because the billable hour, I think, affects so much of how lawyers work. It goes to the uh, not just the cost that companies pay, but the culture within law firms. I think it touches on diversity and work-life balance and things of that nature. That would be a trans transformative event if, if we saw that on a broad scale. Ron Baker, who wrote a book on, on the death of the billable hour, not killing it, but the death of it. You know, he talks about it, the P3 conference, it's a group of folks that get together. And, and really, there's a lot of emphasis on why can't we just make this a standard? There's a big dynamic about the firms that are set up. And I actually had someone do some quotes for us from one of the major firms in the tech space talking about the risk challenge with doing away with the billable hour hour and the overhead that a lot of these firms have. And that's really where the challenge is. I absolutely agree with you. You know, whoever is the one that, whether it's a group of people, a group of, I'm assuming it's the clients are going to force it. And that's ultimately where it's going to come from. I think so. Although to provide some accountability as I am on the client side now, we ourselves speaking for the multitude of in-house that manage cases, we have to be comfortable and the other side has to be comfortable. On our side, there's a worry, and I've seen this happen. There's a worry that with the the alternative arrangement that perhaps maybe it's not a good value for us. And how do I know that the hours that you would have spent translate into the value of this alternative arrangement? There's still been a reluctance, I think, or what I've seen to get away from that measurement, that billable hour and valuing. This is where I say it touches diversity and culture and how we operate in firms and even companies is when you put value of an individual's services into units of time, you run a big risk of running out of that 
that time because our time is finite. One thing you said that I would go back to is the overhead. I find myself operating in, in a law firm environment again. One of the things that I would be attacking daily or trying to attack is, is the overhead. And I think you're seeing that and in the formation of more and more virtual firms and different ideas within traditional firms on how we can reduce overhead. The fact of the matter is, as nice as it is, I don't think there are a lot of clients visiting offices that need to see the nice office. What we're looking for is is good service and good representation. And so that's more important than anything. Although I know that's simplistic, there's a lot of other overhead that goes into operational law firm. It's something that I would be attacking constantly. That's what we hear is the office space. And then we hear it's staffing. How do they manage the numbers and future of the firm? Let's jump to a comment that we've heard more than once. When I talk to folks in the legal operations side, they talk about wanting to expand the selection of lawyers and the selection of firms to lawyers beyond the usual suspects. There's been these relationships that had been developed over time, and there's a tendency to use those lawyers over and over again and not seek out alternative firms, alternative service models, possibly legal service organizations in conjunction with maybe a different law firm that has lower fixed costs. Has Walmart embraced this approach of asking to look at alternatives, looking at boutiques? Is that part of your strategy? Absolutely. I mentioned earlier that we are a company that does have legal needs of some sort in in every state. I could expand that to global markets, but for purposes of this, within the U.S., you're not going to find a state where we do not need a certain type of attorney, uh, at least one. We have, for many years, embraced the use of alternative types of firms and have had a very diverse panel of outside counsel and law firms, not just from the demographic standpoint, but from size standpoint and from structure standpoint, I've said before, we use and have used anything from the solo practitioner up to the top of the AMLAW 200 and everything in between. Again, part of that is purposeful diversity efforts to diversify not only with individuals within majority law firms, but also we look at supplier diversity. So we have a lot of work with minority and women-owned law firms. We have explored work with, as I mentioned earlier, virtual law firms. And I think that there is now, as much as ever, an effort to, to continue that kind of diversity of size and structure. And we've been very good about embracing it. I think that in any situation, you can kind of, I'll say, get into a habit of making the assignment to the same type of law firm or even the same law firm. And I think one of the things to combat that is something we've tried to increase, which is performing more even quick RFPs to try to put into the mix of the RFPs a variety of different firms. The other thing we've done is we've tried to start using the data we've collected over the years to compare everything from hourly cost to total cost, the length of time the matter takes to resolve on average. And of course, we don't look at those things in a vacuum. You have to look at a variety of of items in addition to that. But I think while there is that tendency to get into the rut or habit of sending it to the same type of firms or to the small set of firms, there's been a total embrace of an approach where we consider all options. And really, I think that will only expand. And go back to my answer on disaggregation of legal services. I think that what you'll see, and we've experimented with this, is not just moves 
to different types of firms, but also unique partnerships where we have in the past explored a partnership of minority-owned firm or a woman-owned firm with a majority-owned firm. And it's not just your typical local council relationship. It's a true partnership where they're both handling significant aspects of the case. The short answer after all that is yes. You mentioned diversity more than once in our conversation. I know that Walmart feels strongly about the diversity of employees, your customers in the legal area. Is that even more a focus in your group than throughout Walmart as a whole, or is it in line with the directives that the organization has? It's completely in line with our company culture. I would say that one of the bedrocks of our culture is respect for the individual, no matter who that individual is, where he or she came from, what their background is. It's ingrained in our culture to be respectful of all. I've said before, the business case for diversity has been made over and over again. For us as a company, we have around 260 million people coming through our stores every week. They don't all come from the same background. They're not all the same gender, ethnicity, orientation. We celebrate the diversity of that customer base and we want it to grow. The business case is there, has been there from the very beginning as part of the foundation of our culture. As a company, we have a supplier diversity program where we are looking to make sure that our supply chain is also diverse. So we have minority and women-owned businesses in our supply chain. We have various initiatives as a company utilizing diverse suppliers. The other thing I would say is we have an office of culture, diversity, and inclusion that is company-wide. And it's looking at these issues, not just in the U.S., but globally. The legal department has its own initiatives and imperatives, but it is just as important to us as it is to the company. I guess I'd answer your question. It's embedded in, in who we are. It's so great to hear. Not sure every organization's message about diversity has as much sticking power. Is there pushback at Walmart about using legal services? Are any of your in-house attorneys across the globe saying, we're not comfortable with that? We're not feeling that that's the right approach, you know, as professionals putting their reputation on the line. Any concerns about using legal service organizations or outsourcing parts of the legal decisions? Let me say more broadly, I don't think that the use of outsourcing is anywhere near its full possibilities. I think those types of sourcing are here to stay and that they will affect the way that legal services are delivered and purchased. They're disruptors to the traditional legal service model. But even with all that said, I think there can still be hesitation. Anytime you have a disruption in in a model, there can be hesitation to utilize those types of services or make them part of a legal team or a project. But I think that goes to fear of the unknown and the trust factor. Do I trust if I'm going to utilize this arrangement or this non-traditional entity that I'll get the same service? Does this entity have the same capacity? Do they have the same talent? I think those hesitations have worn down over time, and that's why I'm pretty confident that these things are here to stay. I know that those are some of the cons. Much like diversity of thought and perspective provides you better results, I think that a diverse way of going about things can also provide you better representation, not to mention more cost-efficient representation. While there's hesitation, I think it's more the fact that it's new and that kind of hesitation wears over time. It's much like the example of, of a law firm that might make its way onto the panel and into the purview of someone assigning cases. That law firm 
most likely is not going to get that bet the company litigation their first time out. There will be a pilot, if you will. And that's the same thing that occurs in these situations with different ways of doing things or outsourcing. You start small, you build the trust and, and grow it over time. And we've seen that over and over again, even in our own lives. You know, the first time that you decided you didn't actually have to talk to your investment advisor, that you could go on and do that transaction on your own, and it worked. And you can have confidence in the modeling and the tools that are available. What do you enjoy most about the work that you do? I think in the role that I'm in now is the opportunity to connect and speak to and hopefully influence a broad range of people. I've been very blessed to have had the opportunity to speak around the country, even in some of our global markets, on issues of legal concern, on issues of diversity, on issues of legal operations. But I really enjoy that opportunity to speak broadly and hopefully influence. One of the things I think a lot of lawyers enter the profession with the hope or belief that they can be an influencer or change agent. To the extent I can do that, it gives me great personal satisfaction. I also, on a smaller scale, really enjoy helping people get to where they want to go, whether it be within a dispute between two people or two entities, or it may just be someone looking to solve a problem. I like to think creatively and innovatively about how we can find solutions, both to our conflicts and to our puzzles and problems that affect us, and certainly very grateful to Walmart for giving me that opportunity. Enlightening interview, great information for our listeners. Alan, any last points you'd like to share with our listeners before we say goodbye? Along the same lines of what I was just saying about coming to resolution, there's a sense of a polarization that's going on and a stark line as to our differences. If I could speak to to that more broadly, I'd say if we would stop and think about it, we have a lot more in common uh, than we do differences. And if we stop and listen to the other side, no matter what that other side is saying, we can find that common connection and we can move forward. I'm hoping we get back to that collaborative spirit. Right there with you. Alan, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. Thanks, Nicole. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. For information on our podcast, our 12-session business development challenge, and our online business development coursework, visit leftfoot.com. It takes focus and thought to lead with the left foot. Until next time.